Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 20, recorded Thursday, November the 1st, 2018. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our 11th of the year, we are joined by Suzanne Duncan, Beth Ann Locke, and Andrea McManus. Our topic, being grateful and showing gratitude, the current state of donor relations and recognition. Stewardship, donor recognition, and acknowledgement are widely talked about in fundraising. In practice, however, we tend to fund donor cultivation and solicitation, and more recently, donor identification and research, at much higher levels than we are funding stewardship and donor relations. In today's podcast, we talk about why this remains true and what we might want to do about it. Join us as we discuss this and much more coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have three amazing guests with us today, all experts in being gracious, showing gratitude, and in recognizing donors. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. Joining us from Toronto, we have Suzanne Duncan. Suzanne, I've been wanting to have you on our podcast for a long time. Welcome. Thank you. Suzanne and I first met last year when we worked, actually it was January 2015, when we worked on a big naming project for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH in Toronto. It was one of the most complex but rewarding naming engagements I've ever worked on. Since then, Suzanne and I have co-presented at the Association of Healthcare Philanthropy in Ottawa, and we're doing it again at AFP Congress in Toronto. In fact, by the time this podcast is posted, this will almost be a promo for that. Mm-hmm. Suzanne, Suzanne, from the moment I met you, I've been impressed with how deeply you dig into your work. I'm going to say it. You are a donor relations nerd. You are <laughs> a mental health, you are a mental health nerd. I love that about you. I'm wondering if you would mind taking a few minutes uh, to share w- with us your journey on how you became uh, AVP, Associate Vice President for Donor Relations at Canada's preeminent mental health facility. Sure, what sure. Was path- just, what was the pathway? Yeah, I'll just say I'm a nerd about everything, uh, but certainly mental health and donor relations are, are two of the biggest things um, that I, I'm obsessed with right now. Um, so I've been in fundraising for about 20 years, um, and uh, I've been really interested in social justice causes and worked for a number of small organizations across Toronto that were focused on homelessness, on addiction, on violence prevention, um, all sorts of really important issues that, frankly, people weren't that interested in. Um, and uh, and it's been really great lately to see a huge cultural shift between the last, you know, 10, 15 years where we're really starting to see people wanting to think about root causes and social justice in a way that I've, I've just not seen before here in Toronto. Um, I started at CAMH about eight years ago, and I started as a major gifts officer, um, which was a very different job for me. I had been a generalist um, and basically running small shops for, for quite a while. Um, so I came into CAMH as a major gifts officer, and for the first um, sort of six years of my time here, um, I, you know, raised very large gifts for some really amazing opportunities here. But what was really neat was that the first couple of years, I spent most of my job trying to talk people into being publicly recognized. 
Um, when I started here, people did not want their name associated with mental health. Um, we did not have our first public named uh, exterior space until 2008. Um, and, uh, and this organization's been around since the 1850s. So that gives you a, a sense of where people were at then. Um, and as a, as a major gifts officer, uh, I would, you know, we're focused on, 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 uh, really thinking about big gifts and how to get the next gift and, and doing that work. And what I really wanted to start to think about was what's the overall experience that donors at all levels have with an organization and how can we change the, the donor relations area and put more emphasis on that in a way that lots of organizations are really starting to take very seriously to build an experience and build a relationship. And what's so important in mental health right now is actually helping to build a movement of people who will stand up and say this is important to them and put their name against this and put their advocacy against this. So how do we build that whole community? And we're certainly not there yet. Uh, but there's lots of really, you know, interesting thinking that we're doing here to try to bring that to life more. Well, thank you, Suzanne. I'm just thrilled that we have the vice president title associated with donor relations in this country. So thank you mm. for that, that history. And I know there's lots of folks who will be listening to the podcast who want to know that there's a track like that that might be available to them in the future. So yeah. thank you for that. Thanks. Also joining us today from Vancouver, a veteran of our podcast, we have Beth Hanlock. <laughs> Beth, Hi. this is your thir- third visit to, to the podcast. You're now officially a regular. Um, you first <laughs> joined us. I get a special jacket. <laughs> you totally do. Um, uh, you first joined us on episode eight in November 2017. Mm-hmm. You were on with Scott Dexheimer, Brad Jacobs, and Kathy Mann. It was all about AFP and the profession. Your your second visit with us was was on our China podcast, uh, where we dug into what's going on in philanthropy in China in January of this year. And that and you were on there with with the melody song and Laura Edwards. So Beth Ann, welcome back. Thank you, Beth Ann. Since you were last with us, you've moved on to an exciting and demanding role with the BC Women's Hospital and Healthcare Center Foundation. In fact, you're the center's new chief development officer. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank we you so much. So, <laughs> we are so happy and proud of you. I I know you have some strongly held views on gratitude, and we're going to hear more about that in a few. But for now. Tell us about the new job. Uh, the new job is great. I'm uh, part of a growing and exciting foundation that is not just thinking about how we raise money and help people that are coming here to BC Women's Hospital and Health Center, but we're thinking about how are we um, changing women's health across our province and getting uh, provincial leaders to think more about women's health. Um, you know, it, I think it wasn't until uh, 1996 that actually women were used in um, different medical studies here in Canada. So we've sort of been behind in terms of thinking about women as a um, separate um, health body and not just following on and uh, being a little uh, different than men, but actually being completely different than men. So I'm really excited about what we're doing. I could talk for a long time about all the exciting things that are happening, um, but uh, we got a great team and we've really grown in the last two years from raising half a million to aiming for 7.5 million this year. So there's a lot of exciting conversations going on as a fundraiser and I'm excited to bring a lot more gratitude and appreciation to people who've supported us in the past. Thank you very much, Beth Ann. It's great to have you back. 
Thanks. Finally, joining us from Calgary, we have my business partner, Andrea McManus. Andrea, for you too, this is your third visit to the podcast. You first joined us in May last year to talk about the future of fundraising. It was it was you, Sherilyn Hale, Tom Berkoff, and Jane Potentia. Your second visit with us was last Christmas. Uh, you were right in your wheelhouse, governance. It was a great show. Uh, Sherilyn was back. June Bradham was with us, and so was Simone Toyo. So welcome back, Andrea. Thank you. Andrea, yeah, in a few no, minutes. I'm... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, Andrea, in a, few minutes, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about all manner of things related to recognizing and stewarding our donors. But for right now, your mm-hmm. daughter, Sydney, is getting married soon. The wedding's in Australia. Oh. How exciting. When are you going? How long are you going for? We want to know. Tell us about it. Oh, yes. Well, she moved to Australia at the end of July. And while I'm really excited for her, and I, I love Dan, her, her fiancé, he's Australian, uh, it is a long way away, and I was sort of hoping it settled in Canada, but uh, I'm going um, uh, late January for six weeks, um, so I can uh, kind of take the the big low, heavy low, heavy lifting on the last minute wedding planning with her. And uh, yeah, she's getting out now married on a mini pony farm in Ballarat, which is about an hour west of um, Melbourne. A mini pony pony farm. Are they going to ride the ponies during the ceremony? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been joking about having the mini ponies in the um, in the wedding party, but I don't think so. They'll just be okay. uh, backdrop. Yeah, yeah. It sounds too cute to to to, to not include in some way. Um, yeah. Now, I think you're also speaking at a conference in Australia, if I recall. I am. I am. I'm speaking. Um, uh, at the Fundraising Institute of Australia conference at the end of uh, February in Melbourne. That'll be nice. Yeah. Now, have you yeah. been to Australia before? I have. I have. I went over to, when I was uh, chair of AFP International, I went to the Fundraising Institute of Australia conference, which was in the Gold Coast at, uh, that year. That was in 2012. And that it's was a tough gig, isn't it? Being, uh, being chair and having to go to Australia. <laughs> well, that was the first uh, time that Sydney had Sydney was my daughter was living there for a while, so uh, so I I got to visit her there that time too. Oh, that's yeah. super cool. Well, th- thanks it. for I that. Australia. Yeah. And uh, thanks thanks for for coming. We can't wait for the pictures. Um, <laughs> so, okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this our our twentieth podcast. Today's topic: being grateful and showing gratitude the current state of donor relations and recognition. Gratitude, thinking about it, writing about it, and showing it have been become a pretty big deal. In fact, some say that consciously and regularly thinking about what we are grateful for is a key component to good mental health. On paper, gratitude and its sister stewardship and its cousin's recognition and acknowledgement are also workplace standards for the fundraising profession. On paper. In practice, however, we continue to invest in the pointy end of fundraising, the ask. We support the costs and activities of cultivation, and in recent years, we've also increased our investment in prospect identification and research. The fourth house of fundraising, however, which includes stewardship, recognition, and acknowledgement, continues to lag behind, sometimes as an afterthought, sometimes voiced as important, but often not acted on. What's the deal? Am I being too hard on how we treat stewardship and recognition? Are we making progress here? Beth Ann, let's start with you. Are we giving stewardship and recognition its due? Can we do better? Well, we can absolutely do better. As you know, I feel pretty strongly <laughs> about this. Um, I mean, one of the things that you were talking about and you and I chatted about um, a little while ago was 
um, how much investment we put in the asking and make the gratitude or the appreciation or even just the thank you letter um, really almost an afterthought instead of part of uh, part of the integral whole in terms of the donor journey. Um, and I think that I tell people I work with, donors are so excited when they send the money to us, um, however they do that, or hand us a check, do it online. They're really excited because we've told them a story about how they're going to make a difference. And I think we should be equally excited to receive the money, and we should communicate that joy and excitement back to them about having them be part of, you know, our family of, of change makers. And so often it just becomes a process. It's a process that's done kind of, quote, at the end of the week by the person who has, you know, maybe the least experience in fundraising. Um, and I, you know, large donors get a lot of lavish attention, but all of our donors should get that kind of thing. So I could talk about this the whole hour. <laughs> I'd love to. Well, we're gonna we're, we're gonna come back we're gonna come back to that, but I wanted you to kick it off. Yeah. And Suzanne, did you want to yeah. did you want to weigh in? Yeah, um, I think about this a lot, and especially this time of year, I teach a course at Ryerson. It's an introduction to fundraising course, and one of the things I ask my students, and I have about thirty of them to do, is go and make a gift and document your feelings through that process. And um, it is it, it reminds me there's excitement in that moment of making a gift. There's also a lot of fear and worry that they're making the right decision, that they chose, you know, if they chose this charity, what charities are they not supporting? And there's so many feelings that are happening at that moment. And then they, like, push the button on the website, and then just nothing. And it was really striking to me, like, there's a little thank you letter and things, but they're doing so much of the emotional labor in that. They're really trying to keep that feeling going. And it it feels like there's more that we can be doing for our donors to really reinforce, look, you made the right choice. You're doing really good things in the world, and we really, really appreciate you. And I don't think any of those things are coming through in the way that we actually feel them in our organizations because it is left as, a, as an afterthought. It's left to the end. It becomes very transactional at that moment. And I just read, you know, these 30 wonderful thoughtful papers about people just feeling meh once that gift is made. And certainly, you know, one out of the 30 got a thank you call the next day and felt a lot better. Um, a couple of them told friends about it and felt a lot better. But there was, there's just something missing there that I don't know if we've come up with the, the secret sauce on yet. Okay, so I wasn't being too provocative with my statements then. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Oh, okay. Andrea, you've done, you've, you've helped uh, many organizations with stewardship audits and and uh, and lots of conversation about recognition. What are your thoughts? Well, I I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Beth Ann and Suzanne have said, and I think uh, in my mind it gets, you know, I look at kind of the evolution of this. You know, when when I first moved into this profession um, many years ago, uh, we talked about donor recognition, and and you know, we've all seen the um, the fundraising cycle circle and, you know, it goes identification, qualification, uh, cultivation, ask, donor recognition. That's the way it used to go. And now it goes stewardship. I think we need to turn that on its head and we need to take stewardship out of that cycle and put it in the middle of that circle and everything mm-hmm. else revolves around that. For me, it's a, it's a culture change. I mean, we, we've done a great job even with our stewardship audit. Of, of, of 
creating the matrix. Um, we've really um, taken a stewardship and, and, and made it very technical. But for, it's a culture thing. It has We have to change the way we think about it and the way our organizations think about it. And I, I think it's paramount. And if we need any further... Um, proof. You just look at the the um, fundraising effectiveness surveys report over the last number of years. In 2018, for every hundred donors we gain, we lose 99. So our oh yeah, my god, our overall rate of growth in donors is less than one percent. That's pathetic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. So I so steward so stewardship at the center. I heard I heard so I, I heard fundraising cycle. And everything radiates out of that. All right. What do you guys think about that? Amen. Really? I, I put appre- appreciation. I would use the word appreciation instead of just stewardship because to me, stewardship kind of takes us a little bit away from the direct contact with the donor. But um, I definitely think we should have that at, at the center. Um, and yep. And all this kind of scanned in email, signatures on letters, I, I don't think that that's you know, if you need to scale up to get humans signing letters and doing things like that, then do that. You know, people should feel like there's a human that actually cared enough to put, um, you know, pen to paper to at least sign it because we all know they're mail merged, right? Mm-hmm. Little mm-hmm. things, things like that. I know what. That be, you're, I, that's a really good point. That's a really good point, um, and I, I'm going to adopt that from now on. I think, you know, we, we moved from donor recognition to uh, accountability to stewardship as a more overall holistic view of it, but that's an internal word, and mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a fundraiser's word. And mm-hmm. if, you, if I want my organization to change, I need to talk to them in terms that they understand. So I, I, I love that, even using gratitude, mm-hmm. appreciation or gratitude, but something other than stewardship. If you're trying to change culture, you need to change, you can't use your inside voice, your internal voice. Exactly. You need to communicate in ways that people understand. I had not thought about that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. That's the point. I'm a convert already. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. All and right. I, so I, we ne- Go ahead. Oh, I was just if thinking about donors. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. <laughs> I was just that. thinking <laughs> about about donor centeredness and sort of the the notion that sort of swept us, you know, twenty twenty thirty years ago and putting the donor at the center. And we've done that in the cultivation and 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 asking part, but we sort of lose it once it hits post gift. And you know, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, especially doing major gifts work, the gift is sort of the end of the story for when I was a major gift. So like, we, we did it. We got the gift. And for the donor, that's actually the beginning of the story. So we've got our narratives kind of in the wrong spot. And for them, that gift is, now I'm with you. Let's do something. And for us, we're like, great, we're done. Let's go to the next one. And that, that moment of putting that donor back in the center, I think, kind of speaks to what you're saying about appreciation and stewardship needing to be radiating out through the whole culture. That's a fantastic fantastic comment. We're going to get right to you, Bethan. That's a fantastic comment about, uh, for us, the narrative sort of ended at the, when we're major gifts officers, at the gift, and and for the donors, just beginning. I really like that thought, and I hope people can really gestate on that. Bethan? Uh, if I have, if I were queen of the world, what I would do is you wouldn't be able. Aren't, to wait, wait, wait! You are queen of the world. You are <laughs> queen of the world. 
Let's know what do you mean you when. Carry on. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to deposit or use the money until the thank you letter went out. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's sort of this churn of getting money in, and especially as we come to the very end of the year, which, you know, is a um, a big fundraising time for a lot of levels of giving. And we just, I don't know, I feel like we think that donors are in the stands throwing money down to us. And, <laughs> no, well, I think that's that. We are fundraising when, gladiators. Are you not in the case? But what the donors feel like when they're giving us the money is that they've joined us on the field now. Mm-hmm. They're ready to have skin in the game, and they want to be, you know, part of the Hail Mary pass or blocking somebody. You know, that's, they feel like they're part of the team and not just part of the observers. And so I think that's an important thing to think about and why we aren't just thanking them because the donor got excited by something we did, a conversation or even something they read in the past or something. You know, their Their passion was a light before they sent the gift in. And we can kind of squash it or fan it by the way we treat them right after that. Mm. So what do we need to do to convince uh, folks, and who do we need to convince to to put more resources into this area? Um, So I uh, recently came back from the Association of Donor Relations Professionals Conference that um, happened in St. Louis, Missouri this year. And one of the things that's really interesting is they're actually doing um, some case studies and research using the fundraising effectiveness test and and some other pieces to start to try to quantify um, gains in uh, in donor retention and funding um, against investment in donor relations. And they're just at the very beginning of this, but I really applaud that association for putting some money into research on this um, so that we can actually start to quantify in different ways because we need to have our metrics we need to be able to show good business value. As a non-revenue generating unit, we need to be able to show how we're having that impact in the organization as a whole. And I was really pleased at that conference how many um, how many organizations were really there to talk about metrics and how they quantify. And I think that's part of what we need to do to make our case. So research. Start with research so we can convince the folks that need to be convinced to put some money uh-huh. in the budget for this. Uh-huh. What else? Uh-huh. Well, I would argue that there are some metrics. It's just, um, uh, you know, using using them, finding them, and using them. So when when I talk about gratitude and fundraising and um, increasing retention and giving, one of the examples I use is um, uh, Union Gospel Mission here in Vancouver. They have a good gratitude gang, as I like to call it. And they um, is is it called a gratitude gang? No, they're called you know employees of. That's still great. (laughs) I'm going to use that. I want it on my business card. That's that's what I think every you know every fundraising office needs is a gratitude gang that helps. You know they're kind of behind there, but but you know uh, that's sort of neither here nor there. But um, one of the things they did is they just followed up with personal touches, um, I was just trying to find uh, the stats right now, but I think they followed up with um, 2,400 or 2,500 donors that they just called to say thank you afterwards, and then they did not send out an additional request, 
But so that was in November that they thanked people who'd given. And by um, something like March, over a third of those donors had given a second gift. So they there wasn't an ask involved. They sent in another gift. Um, so and so, so that could be a metric. That could be a metric. Yes, yes. I mean, I think there are metrics. It's just we don't talk about them because we talk about, well, if we do this acquisition and if we use this giving string, like how much science is behind something like direct marketing giving strings and, you know, how you address them and what's in the subject line and the size of the envelope. And yet we don't even put the kind of same resources behind what about gratitude and what happens with that and what do we do when people feel great about the decision they made and we will put back on how their money is being used. I mean, it's partly that we perpetuate our own making it the ugly stepchild by not investing in any of the um, research for it. Well, and there's so much research. I mean, there, you know, uh, not just the Urban Institute and, and that kind of research, but there's so much research now about um, behavioral economics and behavioral science and nudge theory mm-hmm. and all of that that um, really taps into why people give and then why people give again. And, and I think we, we don't use that. But that's that's one thing I just wanted to say. But I. I love the gratitude gang, and I I think one thing that I've seen you do over the years, you make this so much fun. It's not a chore. You just make it fun and um, really meaningful. And uh, so, so I think that's. I I know we have to. I know we talk about metrics, but I think we have to, um, you know, practice. Exactly. Andrea, just a quick technical note. Your phone's cutting in and out. I don't know if you've moved around or something within your um, your, your space, just to let you know. Okay. Um, All right, thanks. But, uh, but we are hearing you. It's just cutting just in and out for me anyway. Um, so, yeah, you do make it fun, Bethann. Talk more about that. Uh, so when Shannon Doolittle and I were running Gratitude Camp, which was a little online course we had, one of the – first exercises we would ask people to do, and I I really encourage people to do this if you want to understand and feel gratitude, is to recall back to one of your early mentors or somebody who has hired you for your first job in fundraising and write them a note, um, an actual note, or if you can't do that, you don't have an address, then find them on LinkedIn or do something like that, but and tell them what they did to help you, like something specific, and what that meant to you and where you are now and kind of how you got there and how they helped you do that. Um, it's usually a pretty heartfelt note, even if it's lighthearted. It's a pretty heartfelt note. And the response you get back from that, I'll almost guarantee the person will be delighted and, and shocked that, you know, after potentially, you know, two to 20 years um, that they've heard from you, because I did this with my very first boss. Um, and and it you yourself expressing the gratitude and taking the time to to make the connection, but a lot of times people do things in our entire lives that we brush up against and they're meaningful and and they're good outcomes, but we just never take the time to um, you know thank them or give a high five or something like that. And I think when you start doing that. I mean, there's a lot of science behind just um, gratitude around for your own mental health, actually, and also for what it does for others. There was a recent New York Times article about um, people who send thank you notes 
underestimate the impact it's going to have on the mm-hmm. receiver, on the recipient. And I think, you know, that's the kind of stuff we need to be thinking about, that it's not just a process. Even the fact that we merge and talk, almost everywhere I've been, we talk about merging up the thank you letters. We don't talk about let's sit down and share appreciation with our donors. Even changing the lens like that and making it more important, um, writing a little note on it as much as you can, just making that an actual experience for the person sending it so it's a more of an experience for the person receiving it. That's the very first start. And, and that's what, you know, for-profit companies do. They try to personalize experiences like that. So mm-hmm. that's one thing, because you need to feel it to understand it. And if you haven't really felt a good thank you yourself for anything you've done, um, you know, you're not going to be as aware of how to create that for someone else. I think that's, that's a great that's point. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that makes me think um, uh, about uh, gratitude, expressing gratitude, demonstrating gratitude, or living gratitude maybe is a better way to say it, kind of as a chain link sense reaction. So if I if I show gratitude to you and I I witness and experience um, your, your receptivity to that, I'm going to want to do more of that. And that's mm-hmm. how you make and I and so I'm going to reach out more and more and more and more because you know what? It makes me feel good to do that too. Well, that's a, that's a great segue into a question I had um, as we're as we're thinking, and maybe I'll turn this to you, Suzanne. Who's doing stewardship really well, and uh, and 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 what can what are they doing that we can look to? That's a really interesting <laughs> question, um, and I don't know that I have a a, a, a sort of answer on that. Um, there are things that I really like that are, are happening, you know, using video, um, really trying to move, you know, we all think about Charity Water in that, um, and thinking about um, personalization. Um, having met a lot of um, American uh, institutions when I was down in Missouri, um, I, I met some folks from the University of Georgia who were really thoughtful about how they approach um, stewardship, but the context in Canada is different. And I'll be honest, most of the folks that I met were doing a lot of stewardship and a lot of gratitude through sports um, and through inviting people to games and coaching and all these sorts of things. Sports were a really big portion of that. And it's made me think a lot about what we have in Canada to offer as experiences where you're in a room together with a lot of other people that support um, or when you're sort of getting that sort of um, proximity experience. And I, and I don't, this isn't really a good answer for you on this, because I don't know um, who is really nailing it right now. Um, I feel like there's there's some way to go, and particularly in Canada, this is a newer conversation, um, and, and we need to really get our heads around what is going to work for us and our donors. It's a great uh, comment about the cultural differences between the two mm-hmm. countries in terms of, you know, those are a lot of uh, higher education uh, mm-hmm. uh, experiences where they've got the sports is a big part of mm-hmm. the of the stewardship um, mm-hmm. matrix that and so amazingly that's huge part. Yeah, huge. So, but how can we? What can we do here that would be like that? Or who is doing that? Who's got the experiences down? And how can we think better about that? Well, I, I think when I was in smaller organizations, the answer was clearer, um, and uh, and. 
we were able to really, uh, because we're in a smaller, more community-based organization, we were able to bring the community in. And we had this beautiful um, open house for one of our facilities when I was with Woodgreen um, that built a uh, transitional housing for, for men who were 55-plus and had been involved in um in uh, in the justice system. And so this was a sort of community outcry at the beginning. Nobody wanted this in their neighborhood. We were able to turn it into a real gratitude event where we were able to invite people to this big open house. We called it a housewarming. People came with their arms full of, like, new sheets and pots and pans for these guys who are going to be moving in and welcoming them into the community. Um, and as I've come to CAMH, we've been looking a lot at, like, what kinds of Similar things could we do here, but it's really it's it's challenging. The larger your donor base gets, the more difficult it is to be able to give that hands-on experience. And I am not a great digital person. I will just say that out loud. Um, so I'm really trying to work with our digital team to understand what kind of value we might be able to bring to that. Um, but I don't know. I don't, uh, you know, I'm still a little old-fashioned. I like the idea of people being able to be together and see something together, um, and I, and I want to figure out how we can start to replicate that with a much more geographically diverse donor group. Suzanne, you did great. I put you on the spot, but I'm going to do it for Beth Ann now. Beth Ann, who's doing this well? What's, what, what's best practice for us? Well, you know, I'm from the um, American context, and I did about half of my fundraising career in the U.S. So I, I agree that the alumni slash sport thing is um, is tight and, and something you can definitely use. But I think that, first of all, in Canada, I think there's just a little bit less rah-rah. And can I say, yeah. so, so there's a little bit in the um, nature of the, broad strokes in the nature of the country. But um, I also think that uh, there's a different kind of humility in Canada. And in fact, I, I feel like there's this whole issue about tall poppy syndrome where, you know, people who get uh-huh. sort of too, too big get, you know, excoriated in the press at the very least. So I, I think that um, – when I think about the kind of gratitude we can show, I when you talked about, Suzanne, the football situation, I think yes, absolutely. But kind of I think the thing to think about is how do we bring people sort of around the table, whether it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you're talking about, but whether it's actual food or it's that discussion. Um, I think figuring out how you can either bring different groups, it doesn't have to be everybody, but there are, depending on, you know, what you're doing or what your mission is, I think there are ways to bring people together and show appreciation. But I also, you know, I think it's just because the way I was raised, but my very first job was, you know, the sort of bottom of the totem pole in a three-person fundraising office. And when, and this was all direct mail, there was no online at the time. You know, when people wrote a note on their letter, which was often, you know, tell Dr. So-and-so, thank you for their care, I would put that on a post-it note and put it on the letter after it was merged up so that my boss could make that note. And I think personalizing it, this goes back to the the feeling of being seen as individuals. Um, Nobody wants to be, you know, one of a million. They want to be one in a million. And it's I think it's really our job to have them feel that way. 
Um, it's, it's not good enough just to sort of, you know, throw everybody over there and say merge them up and put in a fake signature and that's good enough. It's not. I mean, would you like him to have a fake signature on the check so you couldn't cash it? I mean, I, I just don't understand. How, that's, that's how we're so blase. <laughs> you know, we're very blase about getting the money. And, and I think we, you talked at the top of the show about how, what should we be measuring? And, and retention is a good one because it's not about the number of donors you have. It's really about the quality and health of the donor base. And, you know, people are going to be leaving for one reason or another. But um, how many are we keeping year over year? What kind of longevity do we have? And how are we celebrating that? That's awesome. You know? and, I, and I first, first uh, that whole piece was a great piece um, for us to think about. I want to first also, you know, really congratulate you on using the word excoriated in a sentence. <laughs> um, I, I, I've always wanted to do that, and you did. Uh, excoriated in the press. That was awesome. Um, Andrea, who's doing a great job, and uh, and uh, and what practices should we be uh, looking to as, as standards? Oh, yes, yeah, I, I, I echo Suzanne's comment on that. that that's, that's tough to say who's really doing a great job. I think, um, um, you know, one that I would say that I'm, I'm familiar with in terms of an individual organization that is doing a great job is uh, Kids Cancer Care Foundation. Um, here in Calgary. Always, yeah, here in Calgary. They have always put the donor first. That's that entire, and I would say, and I go, don't, it's sounding like a, a beating drum. I, I would say that organization has a very strong, um, culture of gratitude. Um, and that is so tied into their, into their cause that it's, it's really apparent, really obvious. Um, and, that. Uh, but other than that, I, I, you know, I know a number of years ago we used to, I, I saw our profession moving forward to, to build on something that Suzanne said earlier, where you'd, you'd be working in major gift work and then you'd get the gift and then, and then the, you'd, lose the, you'd lose contact with the donor because it would go to the donor relations people. And I never really understood that if it's about, you know, it, you know, what kind of message that sends. And I, I, I think, um, I think thankfully we didn't go too far down that path. I'm sure that exists in some places, but, uh, you know, I loved Beth Ann's comment about everybody wants, nobody wants to be one, in, um, one of a million, you want to be one in a million. Uh, lots of quotes <laughs> coming, lots of, lots of one-line quotes coming out of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, I'm, I'm writing them all down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that, I think, I'm not sure that we're seeing a lot of um, fulfillment of best practices. And I, and I think, you know, given our conversation this morning, perhaps we, maybe it's clear that we need to identify what those best practices are. And they're not metrics. Or, or there, there's something else plus metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so how you, me- I'm not sure how, you, how we would measure that, uh, but, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, gratitude needs to be sincere, thoughtful, um, spontaneous, um, you can't lose that, you can't lose spontaneity of it because you're also individual. Um, 
So I, I think we have a lot, of, a lot of room to improve, to identify and improve what best practices are. Well, that's clear. I asked each of us to point to someone who's doing, and we had to reach pretty deep to come up with a name. So we talk about stewardship fails on an individual basis in the marketplace. I feel like maybe we're experiencing sector-wide a bit of a stewardship fail. Um, I feel like well, you could really uh, turn the corner on that. Sorry, go ahead. Is that you, Beth Ann? I, yeah. I, I mean, here's what happens. Um, big donors get big spotlights. So, you know, and, and we do invest or become creative even in things we do for larger gifts, right? You know, where was this mother from or what was this gift meaningful to him? We do a lot of creative thinking about that. And I think one thing you just said, Andrea, is the larger the institution is, it's true. You do end up getting kind of a, a stewardship group that works on stewardship across the organization. But as a fundraiser, you can actually, you don't, you don't have to let go. I mean, I think you should always be doing a, a thank you note for all the things your donors have done. That can be opening up, um, offering to do a table at your gala. Like, your board might already do that, but why not send a thank you note for, you know, I really appreciate this year again doing that. Um, you know, when they open up other circles, they introduce you to somebody. There are lots of touch points where, you know, to me, um, and well, I have this, but, you know, I'm obsessive about it, but uh, I have a, a box of thank you cards. Um, I try now to have a half hour after my meetings, you know, or block out a half hour to do the notes and to, you know, that note on uh, on the database, but then also to write a thank you note and get that done because otherwise you're just chasing asks and strategy for asks and other types of meetings you have. I think you have to make it intentional and you can and then you get known for that. I mean, it's great if your organization gets known for it, but you as a fundraiser can also be known that as that, and that's the light you can shine individually. I also think of things like, you know, our um, friends, uh, Agents of Good, you know, changing things from an annual report to a gratitude report, it helps the whole organization think about this donor lens. It's one thing that I'm working on here is the donor lens is they're not here as a vehicle to finish your capital campaign. <laughs> right? Right. Right. I mean, they're yeah. partners with us to help kids get better or whatever your mission is. And I think it's even things like that is helping people orient how we talk internally in meetings helps us start thinking about, disembodied people making gifts to people. I, and I, I can't stand referring to donors as their donor ID number when we're, can you just open up 1434? No. You know, use their name. <laughs> okay, I, I've never heard that before. That's, that's interesting. Well, um, yeah. I, I have, I have, I have, Andrea, have you, especially yeah. In, in, yeah, around, around large institutional tables. It, yeah. it, 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 mm-hmm. Especially as you start having conversations with with the more technical aspects of the team. Mm-hmm. I um, I want to I pull a thread on something you just mentioned, Beth Ann, and then I want to uh, – we've got, again, uh, no surprise, many podcasts we could do here around the topic, and I think we should. But um, one of the things you talked about is that, um, yes, having your organization known for being a, a gratitude-focused organization, but also you as the fundraiser. The um, I think we underestimate that as fundraisers. We often talk about, well, we're in the background, you know, it's really – and that's important from a you know ownership perspective. But I've talked to so many donors uh, on behalf of clients, and they talk about things like we're just we're just so tired of meeting a new person all the time. 
And that really mm-hmm. tells me that they, they actually, they actually like the relationship with the fundraiser too. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we need to be more visible. We need to be in some of those videos. We need to be sending those cards even uh, over and above the institutional mix. I think that those are things we should think about. So with that, I um, I, uh, I typically don't get on a, a podium before we uh, we close out the show, so I apologize for that. Um, but uh, we did have a great discussion. I'm also sensitive to time, and uh, our audience likes uh, the, the the length and. Uh, I said we can talk about this forever. So thank you all. You've been great guests. Andrea, Suzanne, Bethan, I look forward to when we can have all of you back on the podcast. And Suzanne, we want to make you a regular too. Um, (laughs) Before we go, I want, I want, I want you all to have a chance to talk a little bit more about what, what's going on in your lives, what you're working on, uh, you know, what what your your hobby horse is, your pet peeve, or, um, uh, what's your Twitter handle or whatever. So I'm going to actually turn it to you first, Suzanne. What do you want the audience to hear or know or, or a story about CAMH, or what's going on? Well, um, I could talk about CAMH forever, but I think what I want to talk about is the Association of Donor Relations Professionals. I'm not affiliated with them at this point, but I have to tell you, they have been the greatest tool in moving into this this field. Um, we had a, a meeting when I took over this job where they just wrote the word stewardship on a whiteboard, circled it, and said, that's our problem. Fix it. And that is... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, straight. it was it was very straightforward but it was also not at all helpful and the first place i turned was uh adrp they have some fantastic resources we were actually able to use their four pillars of donor relations gift acceptance and management acknowledgement um recognition and reporting as the framework we've actually restructured our department around those four roles um, embedded ourselves in the right part of the of the donor cycle so we are now taking care of our donor agreements we're taking care of some of the proposal and case stuff so that we're having the right conversations at the right time for everything to move smoothly and for the donor to have a great experience and and using the resources that they provided and and attending that conference was pretty life-changing uh, and really gave me a real confidence that uh, that I was able to bring into the workplace. Thank you for that, Suzanne. ADRP has really risen in the last few years mm. and uh, and become an organization that's really important. And I, I think that's a nice bellwether for us. I hope <laughs> I know you were there recently. I think next year you and I might even be there together. We're trying to go for that, so that's that's awesome. Yeah, and it's yeah, in Tampa, so let's do it. Oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> uh, Beth, Beth Ann, I know that you yeah. need to duck out a bit early. And we're coming up to the line. You got a couple minutes. What do you want the audience to hear? And, and then you'll duck out and we'll have Andrea close out the show. What's, what's, what, what do you want to say to the folks on the, on the listening end of this podcast? The more gratitude you practice, I think the better you'll be at giving gratitude, but you'll also actually feel better yourself. So, um, I, I mean, you don't have to be anything like me, but I try to do a daily gratitude practice. So, um, writing a card or an email to somebody. Um, and I think that this is what connects us as humans. And when you think about gifts you get in other parts of your life, um, you know, from grandparents or something, you always feel like you should acknowledge those. And we should do that with donors, too. It's the same kind of love and affection that they're sending or will to change the world that we need to be meeting and uh, meeting with gratitude and appreciation. 
Thank you, Beth Ann. You are definitely a queen in this arena, and we appreciate it. <laughs> we know you have to duck out. Thanks for being here. Yeah. And Andrea, yeah, we'll, you let you, uh, we'll let you um, uh, share what you need to share with the group, and uh, Beth Ann will have to listen to it when she listens to the podcast. What's up? <laughs> oh, you know, I've been, I've, there's been so many pearls of wisdom, wisdom in this um, conversation, and uh, I wish I had... I wish I had the um, the depth of uh, I think particularly for Beth Ann, it, it, it's such a part of who she is. I have to work a little bit harder at it, but you know, it's made me think that it, there's so much negativity in the world today, and uh, so much polarization, and so much about saying no, so many naysayers about about everything. And I think that practicing gratitude. Um, it's both internal and external. So what am I grateful for and why am I grateful to you? So I think both personally and professionally, that's really what I think that's really important. It's really what um, it has great ability to make um, to make change in small ways but in large ways. So I'm leaving this call, uh, this conversation with a commitment to myself to practice gratitude more. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Andrea. And um, I predict that this will be one of our more popular podcasts. Gratitude is at the center of a lot of people's personal and professional lives. And uh, I'm so glad we had a chance to talk about it today. I um, I want to thank all of you again, and also Beth Ann, who left us just a, a minute or so ago. When this comes out, we'll be close to November the 15th, which will be National Philanthropy Day across Canada which is now an actual national day, thanks to people like Andrea and Senator Terry Mercer and many others. And so I'm grateful that we're able to celebrate that. And when you listen to this, it'll be right in the mix of that. So with that, our gift of another Brain Trust philanthropy, Powered by the Trail, has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when our topic will be Global Trends in Philanthropy, What to Expect in 2019. Joining us will be Paula Atfield, President of Stephen Thomas, Roger Ali, President and CEO at Niagara Health Foundation, Leah Eustace, Principal at Blue Canoe Philanthropy, and Scott Dexheimer, a partner at Vitreo Group. And just before we go, we have some exciting news. Vitreo now has one more brain trust product in our repertoire. Led by Andrea McManus, the provocateur is Vitreo's inaugural blog. With The Provocateur, we want to challenge the status quo, to stimulate new thoughts, ideas, and behaviors. We aspire to galvanize change within the fundraising, philanthropy, and nonprofit sector today and into the future. In her latest posts, Andrea challenges the fundraising status quo by dismantling some sacred cows. I encourage you to go, give it a read, and if you want more, subscribe so you don't miss any future posts. You can find The Provocateur and much more on our website at vitreogroup.ca. Talk to you in a few weeks. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.